This is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Welcome to the Flourish at Home Show. Your host, Mary Jo Tate, is an international book editor, the homeschooling mom of four boys, and the author of Flourish, Balance for Homeschool Moms. Mary Jo loves to help moms find peace, order, and balance by sharing practical tips, inspiration, and encouragement. Visit her website at flourishathome.com. And now, here's your host, Mary Jo Tate. Hi, I'm Mary Jo Tate. Welcome to the Flourish at Home show. Today we'll be talking about what we should read, how to choose good books, both for our children and for ourselves. This is part two of a series on why, what, how, and when to read, and why and how to build a home library. First, let's look at the three basic types of books. Now, I'm not talking about fiction versus nonfiction. I'm talking about living books, reference books, and twaddle. First, living books. Living books are written usually by one author who loves the subject, who's writing about it because he really cares about it, not just because it was a book that needed to be written. The love of the author for the topic just shines through the book and begs for it to be read again and again. C.S. Lewis defines living books as those that, quote, capture the issues of life in such a way that they challenge the intellect, inspire the emotions, and they arouse something noble in the heart of the reader. Isn't that a compelling definition? Lewis also said that no book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally and often far more worth reading at the age of 50 and beyond. And that's something good to keep in mind when we're choosing books for our children. If we don't find them very interesting, chances are our children won't either. But a book that's really worth reading for a child is worth rereading even as an adult. And there's a lot of joy to be had in going back and reading some good childhood favorites with your own children. So the first type of book is living books. The second type is reference or resource books. I'm talking about things like an atlas, a dictionary, an almanac, uh, books like the Dorling Kindersley uh, Eyewitness series, just great reference and resource books to have on hand. Now, you might think we've got Google. Why do we need reference books on hand? Well, there is value in being able to search something quickly on the computer, but there's also great value in having physical books around the house. And we're going to talk in a later episode about why and how to build a home library. But, but right now, just the idea of having reference books on hand so you could look something up, because there's a... A factor of serendipity in looking up something in a physical reference book. If you look up a word in a real print dictionary as opposed to just looking it up online, you're going to see the words that are around it, and you might just accidentally come across something that's interesting or new or important to you along the way while you're looking up the thing you went there to find out about. The third type of book, and this is a type to avoid, is what Charlotte Mason called twaddle. Isn't that a great term? This is how she described dumbed down, deluded, silly books that are full of drivel and goody-goody stories with tacked on morals, usually very poor quality of writing and kind of reading made easy. Often these books are written by a committee. But God creates individuals, not classrooms. Committees develop curriculum for classrooms of students, but some of the best books are developed by authors who wrote for their own children. I love what Michelle Miller of TruthQuest History says about twaddle. 
She says, Twaddle gives the illusion of learning, but only offers meaningless fact, devoid of context, profound truth, and purpose, the transcendent qualities for which the heart yearns. So it's a difference in quality. A living book has a richness that Twaddle lacks. So what exactly is a good book? Well, first of all, let's consider old books versus new books. Frankly, time-tested books are often best. Older books are much likelier to be living books than books that were published in the past few decades. A lot of people think that a book has to be set in the present time to be relevant to children so that it's something they can relate to, but that's just not true because human nature doesn't change. Our environment and our culture may change, the physical objects we have in our home, the technology around us may change, but human nature is still the same, so don't buy into the myth that a book has to be exactly like a kid's present-day life in order to be meaningful or relevant to them. Frankly, new books are often uh, very offensive. For quite a few years, I worked for a friend who had a small uh, book-selling company, And so one of the great fringe benefits was that I got boxes and boxes full of catalogs from publishers in the mail, and I would go through them. I quickly found out that the books that are being published for today, um, at least 50% of them are junk or worse than junk. Horror, witchcraft, alternative lifestyles. Frankly, some of the books in the children's book catalogs were so awful that I could not leave the children's book catalogs lying around my house for fear that my children might actually look at them. And then for nonfiction, there's things like political correctness, revisionist history, a focus on pop culture and sociology instead of the facts of history. You've probably heard about history books that give more attention to Madonna instead of George Washington. Those are some of the risks of new books. Old books. What kind of old books? Well, look for classic children's authors like Laura Ingalls Wilder and Beatrix Potter. Look for beautiful illustrations. I particularly love illustrations by N.C. Wyeth and Tasha Tudor. Now, am I saying that all old books are great and all new books are terrible? Absolutely not. You have to be discerning. Some old books are twaddle and some new books are wonderful. Some of my favorite books are the Mitford series by Jan Karen, who's my absolutely favorite author. She's writing. uh, She just recently published, uh, I think, the 14th book in the Mitford series. And they're wonderful. They're very rich. But there's a lot of stuff being published today, both for adults and children, that is just not worth our time. Use discernment when choosing books for your children and for yourself. So between old and new books, another factor is what exactly constitutes literature as opposed to just a novel. What is a classic? What is a truly great book? The definition of literature is writings in prose or verse, especially writings having excellence of form or expression and expressing ideas of permanent or universal interest. We're talking about things like the so-called great books, the classics like Homer and Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. These are characterized by excellent writing, by thought-provoking ideas, depth that is often not present in lesser books, and often by the impact they have on literature and culture. Um, The great books have a presence in other books over the centuries, 
just things like Homer's Odyssey, the whole idea of an odyssey and a journey is present in so much literature today that consciously or unconsciously is referencing Homer's Odyssey. Now, there are issues in some of the great books, particularly the books of antiquity. Whether or not we agree with the worldview they depict, they can still be great books. How will you learn and grow and stretch your mind if you only read books that you agree with? How will you learn to think? Now, of course, this depends on age and maturity, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I encourage you to grapple with the great books. Read them and discuss them with your children, especially your high schoolers. Read them for yourself. They're simply too important to neglect. Now, there's kind of a myth out there that a, uh, that a good book means it's a safe book. But I would say that's a false equation to say that safe equals good. And what I mean by a safe book is the idea that there's nothing negative. It avoids conflict or even the mention of sin. By this standard, you couldn't even read Peter Rabbit because he disobeys his mother. Maybe you haven't encountered that very strict standard for what a safe or a good book is, but I tell you it's out there. Safe is not the only kind of good. Safe can be very vanilla. Frankly, if there's no no conflict, there's no plot. We have to consider what's age-appropriate here. Safe is more important for young children. And of course, as our children grow older and more mature, we give them more freedom and more responsibility. And this applies to the books that we give them as well. There's a wonderful book called Realms of Gold, The Classics and Christian Perspective by Leland Riken. And one of the sections that I love in that book is myths about literature. And one of the myths that Riken criticizes is the idea that everything in a work of literature is offered for our approval. That's not true. Just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's an example to emulate. And this is important to teach our children so they learn discernment. Literature can provide both positive and negative examples. Positive examples to emulate are important for young children, but depending on their age and maturity, they can also learn from negative examples to avoid, especially if you discuss them together. Use books to teach your children discernment. Avoid books that depict evil as good, but you can really learn from books that show the logical consequences of sin. Think about the Bible. It discusses a lot of ungodly behavior, but think of the powerful lessons to be learned from, say, the story of David and Bathsheba. Recently, in a family devotional time, we were reading through Genesis 34, which is the story of Shechem and Dinah. If you're not familiar with that story, go look it up. And my boys were shocked that this story was in the Bible, but there was a lesson to be learned from it. So it's okay to read about ungodly behavior to some extent, um, as long as you uh, evaluate it by uh, biblical principles and discuss it and learn the lessons that are to be learned from it. All great literature involves conflict or sin. There's no conflict. There's no plot. There's no story. There is just no way to study the great books, especially the great books of antiquity, without encountering violence and immorality. But the terrible consequences of sin are very evident. Now, here's an important distinction. When I say that you can read about ungodly behavior... It's important to distinguish between whether evil behavior is depicted in explicit detail 
or whether it's merely suggested. If it's depicted in explicit detail, you don't want to expose your children to that, and you don't want to expose yourself to that either. But perhaps it's merely mentioned or suggested. Uh, An excellent example is The Great Gatsby. There's a lot of immorality in The Great Gatsby. There is an adulterous affair, and you know that the characters are having an affair, but it's not depicted in any kind of detail. The physical relationship is not described, And there's a lot of negative consequences from that affair. So I don't have a problem with reading The Great Gatsby, but, in fact, it's a wonderful book that I think everybody should read. But if it depicted that evil behavior in explicit detail, I would not be reading it or giving it to my kids to read. So that's an important deciding factor. Oliver Vanda Mill's book, A Thomas Jefferson Education, talks about raising leaders through mentoring and studying the classics. And he has a really good uh, division of four kinds of books and how they portray good and evil. And I think this is a useful um, measuring tool for assessing the books that we're reading and considering sharing with our kids. The first category is bent. These are books that portray evil as good and good as evil. This would include pornography, lots of horror books, and these should be avoided at all costs, both for yourself and for your kids. The second category is broken books. These portray evil as evil and good as good, but evil wins. A good example of this would be George Orwell's 1984. It's an important book. It's not a heartwarming book. It's not something you want to share with young children. But for older teens and for adults, it's an important book because of the lessons that we can learn from it. So it's worth reading with discernment. But you don't want a steady diet of broken books. Uh, Oliver Vandermill's third category is whole books, where good is good and good wins. Uh, Narnia and the Lord of the Rings books are uh, great examples of these. They're powerful, they're not goody-goody, but evil is evil, good is good, and good wins. This is where you want to spend most of your time. And then his fourth category, which I think is an interesting one, is what he calls healing books. These can be whole books or broken books, either good wins or evil wins, but the story has a profound effect on the reader, and you can't really predict which books these are going to be, but it's a useful category that shows the power of both broken and whole books. Now, one question that a lot of people have is whether it's okay to read books by non-Christian authors. Some people think that the safest way to choose books is to read only those that were written by Christians. Well, this is another one of those myths that Leland Riken discusses in his book, the idea that a literary work written by a non-Christian cannot tell the truth. Well, actually, a book written by a non-Christian can tell the truth because all truth is God's truth. Now, again, you have to be discerning. People write from their own worldview, and it impacts what they say and what they write. But all truth is God's truth, and we can learn a lot of truth from a non-Christian author. Even John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, and here's a long quote, but I think it's important. Therefore, in reading non-Christian authors... The admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, we will be careful, as we would avoid offering insult to him, not to reject or condemn truth wherever it appears. 
In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. Nay, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without the highest admiration, an admiration which their excellence will not allow us to withhold. But shall we deem anything to be noble and praiseworthy without tracing it to the hand of God? Now, once you've chosen good books, and great books can be difficult to read, so you want to have a mix of challenging and easy reading. Again, this applies both to your children's reading and to your own. Not everything has to be as complicated as reading and annotating The City of God by Augustine. That's not a bad thing to do. It's actually a good thing to do. And my son, who's a freshman in college, has just been spending time doing that very thing. However, it is a heavy, a weighty uh, thing to do that requires a lot of mental focus. It's valuable, but you can't make all of your reading that complicated. George MacDonald, who was a Scottish author and minister in the 1800s through the early 1900s, said, There is a great deal of difference between the eager man who wants to read a book and the tired man who wants a book to read. Haven't you experienced that in your own life? Sometimes you're eager, you want to read a book, you want to learn, you want to grow, you want to be stimulated by what you're reading. And sometimes you're tired and you're just looking for a book to read for entertainment or relaxation. There is a place for both kinds of reading. There is a value in reading a light novel, not a trashy novel, but a lightweight novel for a refreshment or recreation. There is greater value in reading challenging, worthy classic books for the way they stretch you. Look at how the author tells the story, how he crafts sentences. And in a later episode, we're going to look in a little bit more detail about how to dig into a great book and get the value from it, how to actually read the book. But don't be afraid to have a mix of both challenging and easy books for your children and for yourself. Now, standards and tastes differ. Um, Every family, every individual is going to have different principles for what they consider a good book or an appropriate book for their children to read. I am willing to have my high schoolers study books like Jane Eyre, The Great Gatsby, and The Odyssey. Um, There are some other books that some literary scholars consider classics because of their beautiful or skillful writing, but I think they're inappropriate for anyone to read because they depict evil in such explicit detail. I'm just not even going to give any examples of those. Um, But standards and tastes differ. My family absolutely loves the Chronicles of Narnia. I have a very dear book-loving friend who just cannot get into the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not a matter of right and wrong for either one of us. It's just a matter of differing taste, and that's okay. Not every book that you love is going to be a good fit for your children or for your friends, and vice versa, and that's okay. So, ultimately, how do you know which books to choose? You've got these principles for choosing living books, for uh, preferring, generally speaking, older books, classics, great books. But how do you know? There are thousands of finely crafted stories for children that make honesty and responsibility and compassion come alive, but they're not always easy to find. Something like 25,000 new books are published every year. And even the books about books, the, the guidebooks that are published today, focus on readability or, even worse, popularity. And as I said, a lot of the books that are being published and recommended now just are are not worthy of reading at all. So here are some of my favorite books about books that are dependable guides to help you choose good books. This is uh, specifically for choosing books for your children. Honey for a Child's Heart by Gladys Hunt. 
How to Grow a Young Reader by Katherine Linskoog and Renelda Matt-Consicker. Who Should We Then Read by Jan Bloom, and there's two volumes of that. And Read for the Heart by Sarah Clarkson. For a longer list of my favorite books about books, you can visit my blog at eclecticbibliophile.com. Now, I'd love to hear from you. How do you choose good books for your children and for yourself? Please be sure to go to flourishathomeradio.com and leave a comment with your thoughts. And if you need help finding time to read in the middle of your busy life, and don't we all need more time to read? You'll find practical tips and encouragement in my book, Flourish, Balance for Homeschool Moms, which is available at flourishathome.com. On the next episode, we'll talk about how we should read, how to get the most from our books, how to use them. So I'll see you next time on the Flourish at Home show. Thanks for tuning in to the Flourish at Home show. For more encouragement, visit Mary Jo at flourishathome.com. The Flourish at Home show is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network.